I want to start today with a question. The question is this, does God love everybody the same? It's an interesting question, and I think the answer depends on exactly what you mean by the question. These last two weekends I've, I've uh, had the pleasure of conducting weddings. And as I've said at those weddings, love is not just an emotion or a feeling. Love is an action. It is something that we do. It is a, a commitment that is put to work or put into action. And so the, the choir just sang a minute ago from John 3.16, right? God so loved the world. Right? And so it speaks to us of the, the breadth of his love. It is, it is the world that he loves. And, and it's not just speaking of the people. It's, it's really all of the creation, right? His, his good creation he loves. But certainly, certainly we as people are a part of that. And God shows his love to everyone through his common grace, right? He, he acts in such a way that he pours out his common grace on, on all, right? It, you know, we're told that it, it rains on, on the good and the evil alike. And yet, the reality is that God loves his people in a unique and covenantal way, for the people of God are not just his creatures, but are his adopted children who he has made his beloved. Zephaniah 3, verses 9 through 20 kind of speaks about this. That's our sermon text today, and it's really one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. So if you would, if you're able, out of respect for God's word, now rise as I read this passage to you. This is the inspired word of God. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and for practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. As you are, would you pray with me once more? Our Lord, our God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much that you have made us your own. May that truth take root deep in our hearts. And may it change everything about us to the glory of your holy name in which we now pray. Amen. Well, we're, we're sometimes a little squeamish, I think, a little uncomfortable with the idea of saying that God loves us in a special way, right? I made that point at the beginning here, saying that God really does say that he loves us in a special way, but it sounds so braggy, doesn't it? I mean, to, to say that God loves me more than he loves you, right? <laughs> it, it, it just seems wrong. It seems uncomfortable to us to to say that he would love us in a special way but it really shouldn't it's only natural if you think about it I, I think back to when I coached Jack's baseball teams when he was growing up I, I really loved all the kids who were on those teams I loved them and supported them and encouraged them and cared for them and and I think that if you asked them about it even to this day years later they would they would tell you the same they would say that they felt that love they felt that support but, but as much as I loved each and every one of them, there is a very real sense in which there was one player that I loved more than the rest, <laughs> right? He was number five. He played first base. Of course, it was Jack, right? Why did I love him more? Is it because he was our best hitter? Well, no. <laughs> was it because he was such a great fielder? No. Is it because he was such a great base runner? No. It had nothing to do with any of those things. I loved him the most because he was my son, right? He, he was my child. He, he was family. He belonged to us, and we belonged to him. That's the nature of that relationship, and so it is that when God makes us his children, we have a special love of his. It's not braggy at all to claim that because it has nothing to do with how good we are or what we've done or what we've accomplished on our own. It has everything to do with the status that he has bestowed upon us. Right? And though he will receive anyone, the offer is open to any who would bow the knee before God, who would reject their own righteousness, and turn to Christ alone for forgiveness. Any who will do that, have that offer before them, they can become the children of God. 
but those who do not are not, right? And so, so we need to realize that even making that decision is a matter of his grace. It's not something we do. He is the one who makes the change in us. He is the one who turns us into what we were not. For he is a savior who transforms. If, if you've got, you know, if you like to take notes, we've got an outline here on the uh, sermon notes page. That first point is that he's a savior who transforms, and specifically, he transforms his children. That's our first fill in the blank there. He transforms his children. I saw one commentator note, the gospel of forgiveness, of cleansing and healing is a gospel that turns us from people who shake our fist in the face of God to those who seek the face of God. That's a wonderful explanation of the change that takes place, isn't it? But again, it's not because of us. It's not because we've figured things out. It's not because we have some innate goodness in us. It's because of God's transforming work. We see an example of it in verse 9. For at that time, I will change. This is God speaking. He says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. It says a pure lip, right, is the, the literal word there. And I think of that, this idea of lips being purified, and it calls to mind the passage in Isaiah 6, does it not? When Isaiah the prophet comes before the Lord, he has this vision of the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. And, and the seraphim, the, the flaming ones, the angels are crying out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and smoke fills the temple and the foundations are shaking. Just imagine, right? Just imagine you showed up for church one Sunday morning, right? And, and there are angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. There is, there is smoke filling the whole sanctuary as the glory of the Lord has descended upon this place and the, the walls are literally shaking, that would get your attention, wouldn't it? How would you respond at that moment? Well, Isaiah responds rightly. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, I've, I've come before God in all of his glory. I've beheld him in all of his glory. And I realize how small and insignificant and broken and unholy I am. He says, woe is me. Do you recall what happened next, though? One of the seraphim, we're told, flew to him. It says in verse 6, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Right? Isaiah had come to the knowledge of how broken and sinful he was. 
And there was nothing he could do. But God, by his grace, brought purification. God brought holiness. God brought forgiveness. And he bestowed it upon him. And so we read today's text, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Right? Our, our worship service is, is a, res, uh, a response to what God has done. Right? That's the whole idea between our worship, our service, all that we do should be a response to the grace of the Lord. So as we gather here each Sunday morning even, the service of worship, this time that we spend together, is kind of patterned on that Isaiah 6 pattern. Right? We, we start off with a, a hymn and we come face to face with the glory of God. Right? Having been called into worship, we come face to face with his glory. And what is the first thing we do then every Sunday? Right? We confess our sin. Right? Because we become aware that there's nothing in us that is worthy of standing before God. We become all too keenly aware of our own brokenness, our own sinfulness. We confess it to him. We confess not only our sinfulness, but we silently confess our own personal sins. But then we receive that proclamation, that declaration from God's word of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus, of the fact that he has mercy on us that he has shown us forgiveness that he has made us pure in his sight that we might serve him together not with all of our own intentions and all of our own ideas but with one accord as it says here wherever we've come from whatever our background right it's talking here about the the peoples again like sam mentioned right the the nations it doesn't matter what our background is right? it doesn't matter where we've come from what our religious or ethnic background is or or what our uh, socioeconomic background or 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 our historical or generational backgrounds it, none of this matters we come before the lord and serve him all together of one accord verse 10 says from beyond the rivers of cush my worshipers the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering the idea cush is ethiopia i say it's from the lands far off they come from everywhere and come together to worship me and it calls to mind once again what's so gloriously spoken of in revelation 7 right in revelation 7 where john has this vision of the last day is as things are gathered, people are gathered around the throne of the Lord. He says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Right? And they were crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, right? They were crying out with one voice together in perfect harmony. All these different people from all these different backgrounds, from all these different languages and together with one voice. And that's what our worship should be here on Sunday mornings, right? We come together not, not so I can have my style of worship or you can have your style of worship or we sing my favorite songs or we sing your favorite songs or we do this, that, or other, but rather we come together as one voice singing glory to the Lord. Right? And we see that, that the peoples are thus transformed. The nations are thus transformed. It's not just the, the nations, though. Also, you see, those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, speak no lies, nor shall there be 
found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, they will be transformed as well. The people who are the, the religious insiders, we'd say, right? People who grew up in the church. The people who, who grew up with the gospel. Covenant children who have, from their earliest days, known the Lord. They need to be transformed too. Each of us, right? The, the hardened sinner and the one who's grown up knowing the Lord. We all need to be transformed. We need him to be at work in us. Remember that sanctification is not our work, but God's. He is the one who does it by his grace. And so, as a result of that sanctifying work, verse 13 says, they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. It reminds us, does it not, of the shepherd psalm, Psalm 23. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Right? He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me a path of righteousness for his name's sake. But this idea of, of, of grazing and lying down. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Right? None shall make them afraid. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is what God does. We who are worried, we who are needy, we who are anxious, we who are fearful, are transformed as we trust in the Lord. He makes us into new people who can rest in him and know the joy of our salvation. This is our hope that he will, he will make this change in our midst and bring about a reality that is transformed. And that's the second blank here. He, he transforms uh, not just us, but he transforms our situation. Verse 11 speaks of that day. He says, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Now we need to know this. Our sin is shameful. We live in a world today that, that, that is really big on positive self-image, right? They, if, you, if you go into the schools and such, they'll, they'll tell you it's really a, a thing that they really work on, right? You really be encouraging to kids and, and help them to have a positive self-image. And there is something absolutely to say about that. For each and every one of us is created in the image of God. What a gloriously wonderful thing that we are fearfully and wonderfully created by God in his own image. And so there is a sense of which having this, this positive self-image is a very real and good thing, but we, as we do with so many other things, push it too far, right? And so we'll hear these things said to us all the time. Well, whatever you feel is right for you. You just follow your heart. Do whatever is good for you. Only you can determine what is best for you. You should never be ashamed of anything. No, this is wrong. Because the reality is, is there are things that are an affront to the holiness of God. And ultimately, no matter how good they feel, no matter how right they feel, no matter how natural they feel, they are ultimately to our detriment and not for our good. So when we sin, we violate the direction of a loving Father who has our best intentions at heart and who would go to any length to love us and to care for us and to sacrifice for us. He has shown us this at the cross, right? Greater love has no one than this. We began our service with those words. 
Jesus has demonstrated that love, that deep, deep love, by going to the cross for us. And in the face of such a love, it is shameful that we are disobedient. It is shameful that we are sinful. But God transforms our situation. He does not leave us to wallow in the shame of our sin, though we deserve to be lost in our condemnation. The gospel tells us that, in fact, he has changed our situation. He has transformed it. Look at what happens in our passage today. Verse 18, I will gather those who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at the time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At the time I will bring you in. At that time I will gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. What a wonderful promise. What a glorious transformation of situations. We, we were dead in our sin, lost in our condemnation, and the Lord transforms our situation so that we are gloriously welcomed in. It even says, I will make you renowned. It harkens back, I think, to, to Genesis 11 and 12, right? In Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Remember what they were trying to do. They wanted to build this tower into the heavens. Why? Specifically so they could make a name for themselves. That's what it says. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make ourselves renowned. Let's make ourselves famous. Let's make ourselves important. The Lord spoiled their plans. He says, that's not how it works. Remember, he confused their languages and dispersed them all around, and that's how we get all the peoples, all the tribes, and all the families, and all the tongues, and all the languages. Right? That's how everything got scattered. But then what does he do? The very next story of the Bible and the narrative is in Genesis 12, and he calls Abram. He says, I will bless you and make your name great. Right? Whereas the people at Babel had tried to make their own name great, God says, no, that is my work. I will transform your situation. I will take you from lowliness. I will take you from lostness. And I will make your name great. But it's not just for you. He says, so that you will be a blessing. And as Sam pointed out earlier on, right? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We are transformed from infamous to renowned, from outsiders to insiders, from, from sinners into saints and from rebellious enemies into beloved children. Our entire situation is changed. So that Paul can write in Colossians 1, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He is a savior who transforms. We're gonna have to go a little quicker on the next two points. He is also a savior who humbles he humbles first off those who are against him. Verse 11, 
He says, then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Right? There are people who think they have it all figured out. There are people who are, who, who, who are in their own minds smarter than God. They think they're better off without him. They think they know better than he does what's best for them. They want to march to their own drum. And, and if you are such a person, you may for a time being feel like things are going well, but I promise you this, it will not always be the case. God promises you that in the end, a day will come when you shall no longer be haughty in his holy mountain. For true and lasting joy and pleasure and satisfaction will be found in only one place, and that is in God, by turning to him in the person of Jesus Christ. If we're ever to experience the fulfillment that we so greatly long for, we must turn to him. And if you do not, he ultimately will humble you. But it's not just those who are his enemies, those who are against him that he humbles. You see the next fill in the blank there, he humbles those who are his. Right? God humbles those who are his. It's a different kind of humbling, is it not? But it's a humbling nonetheless, right? Uh, we, we see here in verse 12, I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. They're not being humbled in the sense that they're being defeated and driven off, but rather humbled in the sense that they're brought to a place that they stop trying to pretend that they're perfect, stop trying to pretend they have all the answers, stop trying to pretend that they are everything in and of themselves. They're willing to admit that they're broken and sinful. They're humbled in the sense that they're brought to an end of their own self-sufficiency, and they realize they must seek refuge in another. Realizing that, realizing that we're not perfect, realizing that we're, we're, we're not perfect, but we are forgiven, we turn and rest in him and find refuge in him. And we, when we do realize this, we should be the most humble of people. Sadly, it's not the case. Oftentimes, oftentimes Christians can be very prideful, very full of themselves, very, very much so. We should be the most humble people, realizing that we've not accomplished anything on our own, but rather God has accomplished it for us. And that can only cause us to sing God's praises. Back in chapter 1 of Zephaniah, we obviously didn't cover this, but in chapter 1, verse 7, the prophet says, Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. But now in chapter 3, verse 14, he sings, says something different. He says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. He tells us to glory, to shout, to exult, to sing. And we see our final point there that we have a Savior who sings. He sings through us, right? Because we are the body of Christ, that He is our worship leader. He is the one who directs us. His spirit dwells within us. And we only worship rightly when we worship in spirit and in truth. And he has given us reason to sing, has he not? 
Right? We sing for reasons of great joy, and what, what more joyful reason do we have than what the Lord has done for us? Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day he shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. It's what Paul is speaking about in Romans 8, when he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise. We'll sing in just a moment here. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all that is in him is now mine. Right? Our enemies are removed from us. And the Lord God, the King, is in our midst. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 12 too, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Or in today's text, the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. Now it's great to know that God's in your midst, right? But, but, but just having somebody in your midst need to be comforting or, or problematic, right? Or it might be neutral, I guess. It, like if, if you need someone to help you get things down from a high shelf, it's great if you have me in your midst, right? I'm really tall. If you want to know inane, trivial details about the 1985 Cardinals, I'm a great person to have with you, right? But if you need like a house built, right? Well, I might be with you, but that's not going to do you anything. So what is it that the Lord can do? What is he good at? Well, he's good at anything. But specifically in this passage, it speaks about this. He is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. He is powerful to save. He is strong to save. He's the only one who can save. And that's a reason to sing. But here's what's even more amazing. It's one of the most amazing verses in all the scriptures, I think. It's not just... We who sing of him. See, he sings over us. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is incredible, my brothers and sisters in Christ. The Lord God of the universe sings over you. Loudly, joyfully, exultantly singing over you. How incredible is it to be the recipients, to be the object of such glorious love. Like a, a great artist who might finish a masterpiece and then stand back and behold it and have his own heart just bursting with joy at what he has just created. So the Lord does with us. Right? Not because of what we are, but because we are his creation. Because we are his beloved. Because we are his children. It's reminiscent of Isaiah 62. That's why we read that today. You shall be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. My delight is in her. The Lord delights in you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The Lord rejoices over you. 
Do you believe that? Do you know that? The Lord rejoices over you if you are his. I want to close with a story. It's a story I heard another pastor share once. A story of a woman who went to a Christian conference once where they were talking about the grace of God. And, and she finally there started to realize some of the, the brokenness from her own relationship with her father and how it had, had changed the way she saw God. And she was finally coming to terms with, with how God could be her father and how, how loving he was. And, and, and she told a counselor there about this one time when, when she was a little girl and, and she saw her older sister doing some of her father's laundry. He had white shirts that he wore to work and they were wet having just come out of the washer and, and her older sister was putting them up on the clothesline outside. And she wanted to help. She loved her father. She wanted to serve her father. And so, so she ran over and started to put them up and she reached and she realized the clothesline was too high. She couldn't reach that high. So she looked for somewhere else to put it so that it could dry. Oh, there's a spot, she thought. And she ran over and laid it neatly over a chair, a metal chair, a rusty metal chair. (laughs) Well, when her father came home and found his clean, clean white shirt with orange rust streaks across it, he flew off the handle. He was filled with rage at his daughter and how she had done such a terrible thing. And the little girl, now a woman at this Christian conference, told the counselor that she was speaking with, I'm starting to see now that if God were my father, and God as my father, came home and found that shirt, he wouldn't have yelled at me. He would have forgiven me. And the counselor says, yes, but you're still falling short you still don't quite understand he says if God as your father had seen you do that he would take that shirt he would put it on and he would proudly wear it to work the next day and when people at work would say to him what's the deal with your shirt he would say let me tell you about my little daughter, and how very much she loves me. And he would sing her praises. That's what God does over you. He sings over you. He delights in all that you do and all that you are for his glory. He loves you. Know that that is true. Be awed by that fact and live in the wonder of its glory. Would you pray with me? Lord God, be with us now. Help us to truly understand this truth, to truly understand your love. May it motivate all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name.